we are going to begin with some crowd participation. So wake up. You awake? All right. How many of you would say that, quite honestly, there's been a time in your life where you have prayed earnestly for something? Uh, Maybe it took a long period of time. Maybe it was a short period of time or whatever. But there was something that was a focused matter of prayer for you. And then God answered that prayer, and it worked out. How many of you have that testimony in here? All right, very good. How many of you would say that there has been a time in your life where you have prayed earnestly for something? Again, maybe it took a while, maybe it was a short time of focus, and you've prayed earnestly for that thing to happen, and it did not work out the way that you wanted it to work out. Anybody raise your hand? Did everybody notice that most everybody raised their hand on both? So there's a difficulty and a frustration that comes along with this passage today. It's Acts chapter 12. And what I love about it is what we see in Acts chapter 12, I believe, are two things that go side by side all the time in our life. It's the reality of living in a broken world. There are things that happen as a reality of living in a world that is broken by sin, that there are things that are going to happen. Let's be honest enough to say, sometimes those, hang, those things happen due to our own choices, our own mistakes, our own sins. Sometimes things just happen because we live in a broken world and we're in the wake of a broken world and things in life don't turn out necessarily the, the way that we would like them to, the way that we think they should. And let's go a little bit further to be honest. There are times when things happen when every single person in this room look at God and go, I don't know that you know what you're doing. Let's just have an honest moment here when we start there. There are times when you go, what in the world is going on? And then there are those other times when you pray and you're on your knees and it's something that's on you and, and, and you are seeking the Lord and then... And he answers that prayer, and then we go to this other extreme of God's the best God ever. I can't believe this worked out. He did it better than anything that could ever imagine, and this is just wonderful, and I I can't believe things worked out this way. Well, if you're not paying attention in Acts chapter 12, you actually miss what's going on with what I think is the dichotomy here of things that are happening. Now, we left off. Acts chapter 11, where we saw Paul and we saw Barnabas, and they were beginning to, (coughs) sorry, they were beginning to gather things together because there was a famine that was coming, and they had led the church to collect some things to be ready to provide relief to the other churches. And so the first sentence of Acts chapter 12 says like this, about that time. And so it's talking about about this same time, all these things are going on, In the church, it says, about that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church. Now, if you'll remember, what we had said a few chapters back in Acts is that from the conversion of Saul, when Saul was on the road to Damascus, after that conversion, it said that the church had entered into a time of peace and that the church was growing and that the church was growing closer to the Lord. And then we come up to this passage and we once again hear that Here goes Herod, and he was violently attacking those who belonged to the church. Verse 2, he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. 
when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter, too, during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you this morning. There's something that bothers me about this passage. James gets a sentence. James, James, the apostle who walked with Jesus, the brother of John, is almost like a byline in this. By the way, James got killed, and then Peter. And we have this story of Acts chapter 12 where he talks about Peter. Now, if you're not familiar with with which James this particularly is, this is James when you see in Mark 3.17 that I believe Jesus gives the greatest nickname to James and John known to the history of all mankind. He says he looked at James and John and he called them sons of thunder. Now, I like the name Sons of Thunder. Don't freak out, everybody, okay? I like the name Sons of Thunder so much that I mentioned it in a sermon one time, and I said I thought it would be the greatest name ever for a tag team wrestling group or for a hard rock band that I thought this would be just the greatest thing ever for, for somebody just to be known as the Sons of Thunder. And so someone at the church then said, well, we'll make Lyndall a shirt, and he'll certainly wear it. And so I do. This is one of my favorite shirts of all time because it comes from reference to James and John known as the sons of thunder. Now, men, I want you to listen to me for just a little bit. I'm not trying to be funny here. I honestly love when you look closely at James and John and you see how they were. These were men's men. These were fishermen. These were rough-around-the-edges kind of guys. They were... They were always the ones who were willing to step up. Now, Peter, we know Peter as what? The guy who's like, speak first, think later. But I believe James and John were almost, and this is, I believe they're almost like the the rough guys, kind of like the bodyguards. Like, they're always ready for a fight. And and there's maybe a little bit of a temper that goes on. When you look at John closely, now what I love about the story of John, when you look at John, that he begins right here, that Jesus said to James, the son of Jebedee, and to his brother John, he gave the name sons of thunder, meaning, I mean, this is just their temperament. This is who they are. This is kind of the, the person that they are. It says that when you look at, when you look at John's life now, because we know that John lived longer than James since we see that James just passed away, that John, over the course of his life, by the end of John's life, he became known as the apostle of love. God transformed his life from the son of thunder to the apostle of love. When you read John's books, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, you read the Revelation, you see these things. He's talking all about Christ, and in every one of them there's a theme. Love one another, love one another, love one another. That's where he moved John to. When when this transformation began, I want you to look. If you remember back a couple of weeks ago, We talked about the fact that when Stephen was persecuted, that the gospel began to spread and that people began to move all around. And Philip, after Stephen was persecuted, he went south and the first place he came, bonus points to anybody who remembers. I know if you're a guest, you don't get bonus points today, but we love you. That's okay. Anybody remember where Philip went first 
after Stephen was persecuted? Anyone? He went south. It begins with S. It rhymes with Amaria. Anyone? Samaria. Okay. So Philip went south. It was the first place that Philip went after the church started being persecuted outside of, the, outside of Jerusalem. Look at what happened earlier when Jesus was still alive in Luke chapter 10. It says, when the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, meaning Jesus knew he was about to be crucified, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of himself. And on the way, <coughs> they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But look what it says. But they did not welcome him. They did not welcome him. So because he determined to journey to Jerusalem, when the disciples, James and John, sons of thunder, saw that the Samaritans did not welcome Jesus, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? Sons of thunder. Lord, they did not treat you well. Would you like for me to take them behind the shed? Lord, they're not acting the way that I think that they should be acting. You want me to take care of things? These are the sons of thunder. Jesus turned and rebuked them and went to another village. Now, I think when you look at the entirety of this, you begin to see a picture here of change. And, and I just couldn't help but see that right here in Acts chapter 12, James gets a sentence James, a person who walks with Jesus. James, this fiery personality who was ready to defend and fight, who was willing to call down fire from heaven on people who weren't going to do what the Lord wanted them to do. We get a sentence here where it says that Herod took him and he attacked the church and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. So we see something at this point in time. Now, stop and remember that these are real people, that these are things that are happening in real time with them. Can you imagine what John felt? Can you imagine what Peter felt? So then we get the story where now Peter, Herod sees that this made the Jews happy. And so they take Peter and they put him into jail. Why is Peter in jail? Because they're going to do what to him? They're going to execute. They're going to kill him. And so now we see where this is going on. <clears throat> Let me go back to what I said at first. Have you ever been praying for things to work out in life. You've, been, you've had an idea of how things should go. We see that the church at this point in time was in a, a good place. It was a peaceful thing that was happening. The church was growing. People were reaching out. Things were, things were happening. And then all of a sudden, James gets executed, seemingly out of nowhere. And then it just it kind of takes the church aback. Peter gets thrown in prison, and then what it says here in verse 5, I think, is the key passage for all of today. It says, so Peter was kept in prison, but look at this, but the church, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. But the church was praying fervently to God for him. We started the entire year here at First Baptist Church with a desire, a realization, if you will, a call that our church needs to be a church of prayer. We, we started off with this, with looking at Acts 4.31. And Acts 4.31 gives a story of how when the church had gathered together with the apostles, how they were praying that God would fill them with the Spirit, 
that God would give them boldness as they went out into the community because the opposition that was rising up against them. And they said, God, we're going to need you to fill us with your spirit. We're going to need you to give us boldness to stand up in these times. So we began our year at First Baptist Church encouraging people to pray that God would fill us with his spirit and that God would send us out to speak boldly in our community. We're going to make it all the way here to Acts chapter 12 today, and I'm going to ask the question, is that a fervent prayer in your life? Is it a fervent prayer in your life? Or has 431 become just an annoying reminder on your alarm clock every day? Has it become a a ritualistic habit that really might not be making a shift in your life? See, we've invited people to set an alarm at 431 every day, whether that's twice a day, once a day, however you work on that. And to pray for our church for those things. And I know that there have been times, and I will confess as I stand up in front of you today, there have been times that at 431 it goes off and I go, I don't have time for that right now. And then I catch myself and go, you better make time for that right now. Because Acts 12.5 says that things were happening in this world that we didn't really want to see happening. That things weren't going in a direction that we didn't want to see go. But the church. But the church. Church, you can make a difference. Church, you can paint a picture that's totally different than what the world sees today. We have to believe that our fervent prayers matter. That when we go and we seek the face of the Lord, that there's a couple of things that we're bringing to the table, I think, that are very realistic about this passage. That we are seeking the Lord with all of our heart, that it is fervent, that it is intense, that it is serious That we are going to God and we are praying for things. And you have done it before you said it at the first of the service. That there have been things in your life that have put you in such a position that it has caused you to go down to your knees and say, nothing else matters except my fervent prayer for this type of thing. Because, oh God, if this doesn't happen, I don't know what's going to go on in my life. Where you've gone before the Lord and you've said, oh God, I don't want this in my life. You realize Jesus did the same thing in the garden, right? He went to the garden knowing he was going to the cross, and he prayed a very fervent prayer that said, Lord, if there's any other way that this can happen, I'm I'm willing. But whatever happens, your will be done. See, we see this right here in chapter 12, that we live in a broken and sinful world where people of power sometimes abuse that, where things get out of hand, and where people get hurt, and even people lose their lives because of that. James was a good man. James was a leader in the church. James was a son of thunder. James was an apostle of the Lord, but James lost his life. But then there's Peter, who gets put in jail, and the church has an opportunity to pray fervently, and they begin to pray fervently for him, and what begins to happen? It says in verse 6, when Herod was about to bring Peter out for trial. That very night, (coughs) Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers. While sentries in the front of the door guarded the prison, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him. Put on your sandals, and he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed. And he did not know, this is what I love, look at this. He did not know that the, what the angel was doing was really happening. 
but he thought he was seeing a vision. Verse 10, after they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate, the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside past one street, and suddenly the angel left him. So you get the picture that's happening here. Peter is in jail, ready to be executed. God sends an angel, wakes him up. Peter doesn't even think that it's really happening. He thinks he's seeing a vision. And, and the guards, he passes all the guards, all the chains fall up. He goes by this big iron gate. The gate opens by itself. And they walk a few more blocks. All of a sudden the angel leaves and Peter realizes this is not a vision, that I've had a miraculous deliverance. It says in verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she didn't open the gate. But she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. So this huge iron gate to the city opens by itself, but Peter can't get in the house now where all the people are praying. There are so many things about this passage that I just look at God and go, really? What, I mean, what? Why did James die? Why couldn't you open the gate? How is Peter? I mean, you just, there's a lot of things that are happening here. I love the response of the church who is gathered together in this house, fervently praying that God would move and do something miraculous in the life of Peter. Peter shows up at the house, and their response is, verse 15, Rhoda, you're out of your mind. She kept insisting that Peter was there. No, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking because for some reason he could get through a gate, but he couldn't get in his house. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed, motioning to them with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said. And he left and went to another place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the, by the way, that's a different James, just to let you know. That's Jesus' brother James. That's wrote the book of James, James. That's a different James. At daylight, there was great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And it says in the story, after Herod searched and interrogated the guards and couldn't find him, he ordered that the guards be executed, and then Herod went down from, Jerusalem, from Judea to Caesarea. So you see, these people who were in power wanted Peter dead so much that they were so frustrated when things didn't go their way, well, they just killed the guards, you know, to do something to kind of flex my muscle in the powers. Now, I love the, real, the realism, like I said, of this picture, of what we get here, of the dichotomy, the difference, if you will, of what it means that sometimes we live in a broken world and broken things happen because we're broken people living in a broken world. And sometimes, let's just be honest, no matter how much we pray, no matter how much we pour ourselves out, there are just some things that are going to happen sometimes. Yay, that's an encouraging word, Pastor. Thank you so much for that. I'm glad I got up and came to church today. Can I just tell you something? If you don't know me by now, that I'm going to just do the best that I can to look at what this book has to say and to lay it out to you to say this is the reality of how it is, but you can trust the Lord no matter what you see as your reality in your life, then you don't know me. Because we don't have to paint a pretty picture in this because here's what's true. is no matter what's happening in this world, no matter what's going on, it's never beyond the control of God. It's never outside of his reach and it's never something that he can't redeem and make right. Does that mean we like it all the time? 
Did you like it when your parents set rules? Did you like it when your boss tells you to do things a certain way? Do you like it when people in authority set authoritative things up because they say, hey, there's a better way to do? No. Now, let's also wrestle with this question a little bit. Does this mean that all these things are happening the way that God would like them to happen? No. Because we live in a broken world. You've got to go all the way back to the first of the book, Genesis 1. You read through that, you see the world as God intended it. You get to Genesis chapter 3 when you see sin enter the world, which breaks us all away. And everything else right now is part of God's redeeming plan to bring men and women back to himself. To realize the life that they were created for, the life that the way it should be as he created us to be. Everything else is working in that direction. And God, it tells us in scripture in the big picture that God is patient with this broken world. Because in his patience, more people have the opportunity to come to know him. Let me tell you this. If the church is praying fervently to be filled with his spirit and to go speak his word boldly, then God's patience is paying off. Because as we endure and walk through this difficult world, even in the midst of broken things happening, there should be people every day coming to know the Lord, drawing themselves close to them, redeeming a life, turning it around, seeing the light, living a different way, and having life on this earth as it's intended, and a life that moves into eternity with Jesus Christ, if the church is praying fervently to be filled with his spirit and to speak the word of God boldly. That's what this is about. So, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. And I love the picture. As the church was even praying for him, he shows up. God answers the prayer, and they go, I don't believe it happened, even though I'm praying for this. You know what? God does some things in our hearts and in our lives sometimes that he works it out in such a way that we absolutely can't believe that it happened. I mean, it's just the truth. We pray for things, and, and, and I think if you're, if you're honest with yourself, if you're true with yourself, when you begin to pray, whether you really think it out or not, when you begin to pray, you begin to have a picture of, God, I want an answer to prayer, and I'd like it to look like this, and I'd like it to happen at this time, and I want it to be this way. And, and we begin to get those things in our head. And so sometimes when God answers a prayer that is different than the way that we're thinking that he's going to answer it, or that's even better or even more miraculous than the way that he answers it, sometimes our first response isn't necessarily, that is awesome. Sometimes our first response is, I, really? I don't believe that. And it takes us a while to see that because God's ways are good and perfect, and our ways sometimes are broken, sometimes are limited. So we have to see that God can move. And so this whole thing circles right back around to prayer. And I ask you again, what are your fervent prayers? Do we have a miraculous story here of Peter being rescued? Absolutely. And it is a picture of what the fervent prayer of the church can do in the life of even an individual. And so let me just say this. Is there someone that you know that needs rescued? Is there someone you know that needs rescued? Then let's get to fervently praying for them. And let's see what God can do. And, le and let's let God begin to move. But it's, it's going to happen first. And what you see all throughout the book of Acts is that it is prayer that drives the church in Acts. That's your first point. <clears throat> it's prayer that drives the church in Acts. They begin by gathering in a room praying. They're in a room praying when the Holy Spirit comes. 
When they get persecuted, they gather together and pray. When Peter gets thrown in prison and James gets killed, they gather together and they pray. It's prayer that drives everything that's happening in Acts. I'm going to say this again. It's prayer that drives everything that's happening in Acts. It's going to be prayer that drives everything that's going to happen in your life and in your faith with Christ and my life and my faith with Christ. Nothing else. It's going to be that time where we go before the Lord and look and we lay ourselves out transparently before the Lord. It is okay to put yourself before the Lord and say, God, this is, this is what I want. But you have to understand that sometimes you pour yourself out fervently and you pray for things and you pour yourself out for things and God has a different way of working things out and you've got to be okay with that. You've got to be okay when things don't work out exactly like you want them to work out. There's got to be some trust. You see, walking with Christ, becoming a Christian does not mean that when you become a Christian and I begin to do things God's way and I begin to pray, then everything in life works out. That's a lie. And that's a lie that sometimes, unfortunately, comes from a lot of pulpits at times. I'm not calling out anyone in particular. I'm just saying sometimes inadvertently and sometimes on purpose, we, there are preachers who give this idea that, well, if, if things aren't going well in your life, it's kind of like we gather together like Job's friends, and I know some of you have no idea what that reference means. But when you have Job, who's going through one of the most difficult times in his life, he had three men who gathered around him who were really close to him and said, Job, God wouldn't allow something like this to happen unless there's some sort of sin going on in your life. Well, no, that's not necessarily true. Because sometimes we just live in a broken world and things happen, and we have to endure those things. You see, praying fervently, walking with God, does not guarantee that everything's going to work out the way that we think that it should. What it guarantees is that no matter how things work out, there's going to be someone who's going to walk with you through them. There's going to be someone who's going to carry you in the low times. There's going to be someone that's going to walk beside you in the right times. There's going to be someone who's going to do miracles beyond what you ever thought could possibly imagine in your life and in the life of someone else when we seek God fervently in prayer. And when we get ourselves to a place where we say, where we're able to go, you know what, that didn't work out the way that I thought it would work out, but God, I, I trust you even in the midst of this. Then you begin to see your faith come to life. Does that mean you're not disappointed? No. Does that mean you're not confused? No. If you'll remember a few stories back, when Peter was given a vision, that vision, all it did to him was confuse him. That's what it told us in Scripture, that God spoke directly to Peter and Peter went, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea what's going on here. And it took time for that to begin to, to come into clear view for Peter. And so we have to understand that prayer drives the church in Acts. And it is prayer that should drive my faith. It is prayer that should drive my faith. Again, I'm going to go back to one of my phrases I say all the time. You know, you know you're probably going to get tired of me saying these things sometimes, but the Christian faith is a simple faith. Simple and easy are two different things. Okay, you need to understand that. Simple and easy. Simple means I can explain it in such a way. When Jesus said, when Jesus was asked to boil it all down, what are the greatest commandments? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is simple to explain. Pour yourself fully into God, 
And as you do that, then love your neighbor as yourself. It's simple to explain. Is it easy to do? No. Sometimes it's very difficult to do. But I would tell you this, and what I'm saying about prayer, what I'm saying about our faith is this. If I could, as a Christian leader, just have the opportunity to just kind of wave my hand and for the, the church that I'm leading to just, okay, we're all going to do these things together. This is it. Everybody does this. I will tell you, it's a, it's a two-part thing for me. One, that we would all spend time in God's word daily. That you would take this word and that you would begin to put it into your life. And then the second thing that I would say is then that we would fervently pray. That God would speak to us through that and we would obey what he's telling us to do. That, that's it. It's pretty simple. Because I have a, a very sincere and very deep belief that that's what walking with the Lord means on this earth. Is that I have been brought up in a way and I have experienced life in such a way that causes me to be confused about some things. It causes me to be opinionated about some things. It causes me to be hurt about some things. It causes me to be excited about some things. And when I look at what God is leading for us to do sometimes, I'm like, I'll just be honest, I'm like this church that's gathered together going, God, would you do a miracle? God, would you do a miracle? He goes, I did the miracle. And I go, I don't believe you did the miracle. God, would you do this miracle? And we just kind of walk by and we ignore that. And, and I wish that I, like everyone I come in contact with, would just say, I'm going to take God at his word. And when I see something in there that teaches me that this is what I need to do, then I'm just going to start doing it. I'm going to take God's word. I'm going to pray that he would help me start doing it. <clears throat> and what I see today is just very clear, is that it is the fervent prayer of a church that makes a difference. You know, again, I go back to verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying to God fervently for him. I love that. This was happening, but this was happening as well. I mean, if I were to update that for today, we could look at things like Congress passed a law, but the church was praying fervently that God's will be done, you know. We could say this incredible tragedy happened in our world, but the church was praying fervently that God would move. We could say, you know, we know a family who's struggling and this family's breaking up, but the church is praying fervently for this. And, and sometimes, I'm just going to be honest with you, sometimes you know why the church can't pray fervently? Because we haven't learned to be transparent with one another. We come to church sometimes and we go, is there anything you can pray about? Mm-mm. Because if I tell you what I need to pray about, then you're going to look at me and go, ooh, Really? That's happening in your life? Hmm. And instead, what we need to do is we need to become a people where, where, where people can be fully known and fully loved by God. That's our vision as a church. Where people can come in to these walls and they can sit in your Bible study classrooms or they can come to this church service and they can come to worship and they can look at someone and say, look, i got a lot of good things that are happening in my life, but there is something that's hanging over my head that's eating my lunch. I don't know what to do about it. And I need prayer. And I need help. And then they need to be able to come together with people who will come to them and say, I will pray fervently for you. I will go to the Lord. And we can take that phrase, but the church, and we can make that 
a difference in somebody's life. And they were heading far, far away from God, but the church, praying fervently for them. They were growing up in a home where nobody knew the Lord, but the church was praying fervently for them. They didn't have two nickels to rub together and didn't know what they were going to do to eat tomorrow, but the church. You see, prayer drives everything in the book of Acts, and it's our opportunity to live out our faith if we will pray fervently to the Lord, that God would fill us with his spirit, that he would use us to speak his word boldly, and that we would simply do what Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Live those things out.